Hi there, I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of September 18th, 2023. Temperatures are beginning to cool off after the hottest summer in Phoenix history. We saw more days at or above 110 degrees this summer than ever before. And unfortunately, those extreme temperatures led to hundreds of deaths. As Catherine Davis-Young reports, the high death toll is in spite of record investments to protect people from heat. Jay Duval has been homeless since November. He has a tent, but says most nights in downtown Phoenix this summer, it was too sweltering to sleep in it. When you got no breeze or anything, it's you can't, it's way too hot. He's 52, diabetic, and he knows the relentless heat of the past few months has been bad for his health. A few times he was hardly able to move all day, but he saw others who had it worse. A friend of mine came up to my tent one day and wasn't really coherent, couldn't really talk, and he fell over. I called the ambulance for him, and they came and took him in. He had 106 temperature. Duval doesn't know what happened after that. He fears the worst because that was in July, and his friend never came back. Duval is among nearly 500 people living in the homeless encampment known as The Zone. There were more heat-related deaths in this zip code than any other in Maricopa County last year. This year was supposed to be different. The county directed more money to heat mitigation efforts in 2023 than ever before. Even so, this year's death toll will be the highest in history. The number of bodies that we admitted to examine, the number of scenes that our investigators needed to go and evaluate, all of those really shattered previous records. Dr. Jeff Johnston is the county medical examiner. He says homelessness is a major factor in heat deaths. The county's homeless population has increased 50% in five years. Annual heat deaths have more than doubled in that time. So new heat relief programs for unsheltered people were central to Maricopa County's strategy this year. The county used $2.4 million in federal funds to partner with Phoenix, Mesa, Glendale, and other cities to open new heat relief sites. We thought we'd have a slow ramp up, but they were full almost immediately. Rachel Milney is director of Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions. Her office used the funding to open two new daytime cooling centers, which served hundreds of people. But even when substantial funds are available, it can take time to put that money to use. During the hottest part of the summer, Phoenix and the other participating cities didn't spend even half the money they were given for heat relief. At least $1.3 million of the county's budget for new programs was not spent as of late August. As deaths climbed to record levels, could Phoenix and other cities have done more? Milne doesn't think so. The city of Phoenix is, is confident that we did what we could with the county's money. We did extend hours. We did add amenities at both of these sites. The county's Human Services Department plans to review which of the pilot programs were most effective, but the county says the programs did serve more people than previous years. David Hondula directs Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. He agrees the work of nonprofits and local governments undoubtedly saved lives this summer, but he says heat mitigation strategies are still too fragmented. It hasn't been anybody's job to be the regional coordinator or the statewide coordinator for these heat relief network operations. Hondula told KJZZ's The Show increased spending to prevent heat deaths clearly isn't keeping pace with the problem. 
Back in the zone, Dr. Mark Bueno has seen the effects of record-breaking temperatures firsthand. This summer ended up being worse than last summer. I saw a number of heat exhaustion, uh, heat stroke, as well as uh, pretty severe burns out here. Bueno is outreach medical director for Circle the City, a group that provides medical care to homeless patients. He knows the city and county governments made efforts to protect homeless residents this summer, but he says his patients still needed more water bottles, more access to cooled indoor spaces, and more long-term assistance. What's missing is our patients are not housed. And I think that's the, the key issue. In addition to heat relief spending, the state, county, and city have each spent record amounts on homelessness solutions in the past few years. Phoenix plans to add nearly 800 shelter beds in the year ahead. For now, though, shelters are full. And Jay Duvall, who saw one of his homeless neighbors collapse amid record July heat, wonders why more services haven't become available faster. He's heard about the court-ordered efforts by the city to gradually clear out the zone and offer people beds as they open up. They're supposed to be getting everybody out of here, so I don't know. They're taking their sweet time. If anyone had offered him a chance to get off the street and out of the heat this summer, he says he would have taken it. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Nearly a third of the Navajo Nation still lives without running water, but that doesn't stop travelers from veering off the grid to find a place without a faucet, flushing toilet, or shower to spend the night. Gabriel Pietrazio heads off-road to find a rare Airbnb experience. Head north on State Route 89 toward the faintly populated Navajo town of Cameron, turn right onto Indian Route 6730, drive three miles on unpaved roads through the Painted Desert, and you'll eventually stumble upon a mud hut emerging from the ground called a Hogan. Shauna Yazi and her 13-year-old son Zenium arrived earlier and started fixing up her family's Hogan for my Airbnb stay, which comfortably fits two twin beds ready to be made. I learned how to make my corners in boarding school. This is how the dorm aide taught us to make our beds every morning. Spends hours each day dusting blankets, stacking firewood, and oddly enough, even dampening the rust-colored soil with a portable battery-powered rinse kit. And it works perfectly for wetting the ground evenly. It only takes three minutes. And it gives it a cleaner look. So when you're a guest and you first walk in, you don't see any footprints. Followed by raking the dirt to release a distinct earthly scent. And then the smell of wet dirt. Oh my gosh, I really? love that. Because we live right along the little Colorado River. I don't know why. I used to eat the wet sand down there. Her elder uncle, Floyd Stevens, helped build it nearly half a century ago. Cattle, sheep, and horses once roamed the homestead. They call it the Fort Castic Hogan, and they all interlock at the top. He forged the mountains near his hometown of Page to find trunks of cedar and juniper to shave by hand, three main beams. That come from the, uh, the south, the west, and then the north. And its doorway faces east. You meet the sunrise in the morning for your prayers. Occasionally, their spiritual abode has relocated. Now in its final spot, if the Hogan isn't occupied, it's supposed to be taken down, but... I don't have anybody to put it back up because all the men that know knowledge of how to put it together are no longer around. And the 73-year-old Stevens cannot do it anymore. But now, you know, 
This one, I had young boys help me. Young boys like Xenium, who spent part of his spring break plans smearing a mixture of wet mud and clay on its exterior walls after last year's rainy monsoon season eroded away at its elemental structure. That experience like? Fun, uh, tiring. Two days, I hear, right? <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of work. First time doing it? Yeah, that was my first time. Would you do it again? Yeah, probably. It's a lot of fun. Listing the Hogan as an Airbnb destination was initially a way to fundraise for an annual family reunion. Not only that, but also to provide education. There's thousands of people that drive through this highway, through the Navajo Nation. They can only see from their cars, and they never get to experience it. A once-in-a-lifetime experience is how she describes it. I only stayed one night. But this is their way of life. Whenever she's not busy greeting guests, Yazzie is working as a program manager based out of Navajo Mountain, Utah, for Dig Deep's Navajo Water Project. We have families that live between here and the next highway, which is going to be running towards Hopi. About 30 miles away outside of Tuba City. In between, there's no water lines. Those living on the Navajo Nation are 67 times more likely to lack running water or a toilet compared to other Americans and many must haul water for miles just to meet their daily needs. They're in their last few years of life finally getting what we provide to them and seeing water actually come out of a faucet. So those are moments that my team and I get to embrace. The nonprofit has installed over 100 home systems and delivered water to more than 550 households so far this year alone. But her guests still get to learn what it's like to live without plumbing. She fills camping jugs drawing water from the 338-mile-long Transcend Desert River, one of the largest tributaries stemming from the Grand Canyon. Despite that, they've attracted a growing clientele and is gaining popularity, more than 1,000 bookings since she began in 2017. This humble hidden gem has even attracted celebrities like Will Ferrell, who stopped by in March. So she's encouraging others to expose themselves to her lifestyle too. So if there's any other high profile actors, I'm the lady to see. <laughs> For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietrazio reporting from Cameron on the Navajo Nation. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, through our Q&AZ reporting project, KJZZ listener Michelle asked, who owns all those big, beautiful, historic buildings and schools in downtown Globe? Are they just sitting there empty? As Bridget Dowd reports, the short answer is many of them are finding new life. The city of Globe, which sits about 90 miles east of downtown Phoenix, was founded as a mining camp in the 1870s. It was once a bustling Wild West town full of saloons and outlaws, known for clashes between ranchers, miners, and neighboring Native American tribes. But with the mining days long gone, Globe is now a quiet area with about 7,000 residents and dozens of hundred-year-old structures looking for a second life. Some have been continuously occupied, but others are not so lucky, like the Hill Street School built around 1920. The three-story, 39,000-square-foot concrete building stopped serving students in 2005. It's since been vacant and deteriorating, with more windows busted out with each passing year. But it won't be that way much longer. We are excited that we're going to be able to make this old gem shine again. 
That's Dan Clocky. He's the Senior Development Project Manager for Gorman & Company, which is restoring the building to its former glory so it can be used for senior housing. There really hasn't been a lot of construction in the City of Globe for probably 10 to 15 years. There's a need for housing of all price points. There's also a need for seniors that are in single-family homes that maybe can't manage that quite so much anymore. He says the 64 new units at the former Hill Street School will help older adults downsize while freeing up some of the single-family homes for other residents. We're going to try to keep as many of the features as possible in the school. We're going to try to maintain as many of the old wood floors as we can. Some of them are pretty in pretty bad shape, but we're maintaining the old doors. We're maintaining a lot of the, the, the molding and different things like that, obviously the high ceilings. Gorman broke ground on the project earlier this year, and it should be finished in late 2024. Clearly, there's there's a lot of warm feelings for this building. There was a, a couple of women who have cared for the garden in front of it for probably 15 years just to try to make it look nice, and so we're, we're excited. And other historic buildings in town are getting a facelift. Tom Thompson owns several of the old structures in Globe and neighboring Miami. I've always bought them because I just love old buildings. And uh, a lot of people have thought over the years that I'm crazy for buying some of these buildings, but I take a lot of pride in our community. One of those is the Elks Building, which was built in 1910 and has a small claim to fame. It supposedly is the tallest three-story building in the world in in the Guinness Book of Records. Thompson is working to stabilize the roof and windows of the 100-foot-tall brick structure, which has been a lodge, a theater, and a mortuary. Thompson also bought the J.C. Penney building, which was once managed by Arizona's first governor, George W.P. Hunt. It became the J.C. Penney building back in 1924, and then ceased being in probably around 1998. It's been a number of things. I've sold it and got it back a couple of times. That's because Thompson doesn't usually buy the buildings to profit from them. Molly Cornwell is with the Globe Downtown Association. She says Thompson is modest, but it's because of him that Globe hasn't lost more of its historic structures. A lot of small businesses wouldn't have it in their budget or wouldn't even, an artist wouldn't even know how to fix a roof or do it properly, where he gets the buildings to a state where then now they can thrive as something else. One that needed a lot of saving was the old Globe Cafe building. Cornwell says at one point the entire back end of the building was falling off and the Main Street director at the time begged Thompson to step in and buy it. And they were able to put the whole back end of the building back on and, and structure it. And I don't think you made a dime on that thing, but it was a labor of love. He sees things that are still savable in a state where other people are like, just tear it down. The town also has a lot of buildings that still look the same for the most part, but are used for new purposes. The train depot gets rented out for weddings, the old jail acts as a museum, and the original courthouse has been turned into a center for the arts. And Thompson says each one of them has something special to say. There's such a down-home feeling that you have here in this area that I, I can't even fathom the thinking that you'd ever get out of a Phoenix or a Tucson. That's exactly why he and other residents will continue to preserve and revamp the town's historic buildings for years to come. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. The Navajo Nation wants to increase tourism, and it's looking at some of the most iconic spots in northern Arizona to do so. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michelle Marisco reports. 
Navajo President Boone Nigren met with Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs last week to discuss how to create new businesses, fund job creation, and grow the area's tourism economy. The nation sits just outside of what Nigren called the ultimate Southwest road trip, a route that includes the Grand Canyon, Horseshoe Bend, Antelope Canyon, National Parks in Utah, and finally Monument Valley. These stopping points, he said, bypass Navajo National Monument and the Navajo Capitol Window Rock. Nigren said the tribe will be developing a strategy with Arizona and with tour companies to introduce tourists to these areas. Michelle Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In KJZZ Original Productions. From the show, more school counselors are facing compassion fatigue. Here's co-host Lauren Gilker. There's been a lot of research into a phenomenon called compassion fatigue in lots of fields, from first responders to teachers. But our next guest found very little research had been done into compassion fatigue in school counselors like her. It's when someone absorbs trauma through the eyes and ears of others. I see it as the emotional and physical depletion. You just don't have it in you. The empathy is exhausted. Melissa Manganaro spent a decade as a high school counselor here in the Valley. But when she started to feel the emotional and physical effects of what she found out was compassion fatigue, she changed course. She took a do- job in the art department at the high school where she works and completed her Ph.D. dissertation on compassion fatigue in school counselors. I spoke with her more about what she found and why she became a school counselor to begin with. So I taught for 10 years at the junior high level and... Students, I was just always drawn to students. You know, they came to me when they had stuff going on in life. And some friends just said, hey, you know, you'd really be a good school counselor. These kids are already coming to you. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I wanted to work with students at a different level where I wasn't just tied to the classroom and the curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to help them outside of the classroom. So 10 years is a long time as a counselor. Uh Um, Why did Mm -hmm. you end up leaving? It sounds like what you started doing as a counselor changed significantly by the end. Yes. I mean, right away, I, I saw more mental health aspects working with students and It just wasn't what I I wasn't trained to be a mental health counselor. You can think of it that way. Hmm. And as the years progressed in my career, I felt like the student's mental health was worsening through the years as well. I'm dealing with more personal crisis issues Hmm. rather than helping them figure out what classes to take and prepare them for college or a job after high school. You can see where the compassion fatigue might creep in there, right? Yeah, definitely. It was probably about year six. I something just started not feeling right. I loved my job. I loved coming to work. I love my school. I love my coworkers. But I just felt like something was off. And I wasn't I wasn't depressed or anything like that. And my trigger was suicide and suicide ideation. Mm and self-harm and so when those students would come in i i mean i i would break down and i'd have to go decompress with coworkers, you know mm. and so this just added up and and i actually went to talk to a couple therapists just to see like what is going on with me and i just couldn't figure it out and a coworker and i went to a um, the counseling association has conferences every year 
Yeah. And so we went to one of the conferences and I went to a session about compassion fatigue. Mm. No clue what it was. You know, I'm like, what is this? And so we go in and the gentleman was talking about it. And there's a compassion fatigue self-test that you can take. And so I took this and I scored extremely high risk for compassion fatigue. Mm. And I, I just looked at my coworker, who is my friend as well. And I just tears came in my eyes and I said, I know what's wrong with me now. And so then I could address, you know, the situation and, and it all made sense from there on out. Yeah. So tell me, Melissa, about the students. Like, why do you think it changed? They changed over the years. You, did you start to see a lot of suicide ideation? Did you, did you have a student complete suicide? Um, I've had multiple students commit suicide through my 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it started, I'm sorry if I get broken up. Started when I was teaching. Okay. I lost a couple students. Um, and then as a counselor, my first year counseling at the high school, we lost a student on campus and we had to be the ones to break it to the community. Mm. Um, and so I was a deer in the headlights. I didn't know, you know, and yeah. it, it just shocked me. And I was like, wow, this is real. And I would say, Unfortunately, every year we've lost a student um, on campus, um, you know, in our community. And there wasn't probably a month that went by as a school counselor that a student didn't come in self-harming or thoughts of suicide, attempted suicide. Um, And so, you know, these kids take on a lot. Mm -hmm. And... I think the coping skills are not um, sufficient with them. And, you know, we could, we could have a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Does that come from social media, you know, and, and where that comes from, but times are changing and they continuously change. Technology is getting greater. Everything's in their face. When I was younger, we didn't have access to all that. And it wasn't just things weren't put in our face every mm-hmm. day as it, as it is now. And so I just see, um, their coping skills and are struggling right now and how to deal with it and deal with things that they go through every day. Mm -hmm. So then you decide to leave counseling because of this compassion fatigue you were experiencing and you Mm -hmm. turn this into PhD work research, right? You you decided to Mm -hmm. find out what's going on. Tell us about your dissertation and what you did find. So, yeah, I went into it thinking, I can't be the only one that experiences this. And so I wanted to reach out to school counselors and find a way to help school counselors have more resources so they don't experience compassion fatigue or if they experience it, have resources in place to help them cope with it and get through it. Um, So more counselors aren't leaving and it's what I thought I would find that these school counselors were experiencing this at all levels across Arizona. And so nationwide, we could talk about caseloads. Mm -hmm. So across the nation, the student to counselor ratio was at 464 to one, Mm -hmm. where the America's School Counseling Association recommends 250 to one. But this tells me with that national number, that this isn't only happening in Arizona. Although that ratio is worse in Arizona. I think in Arizona, it's more like 650 to one, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, my participants, um, I had one with 466, 550, one with 1000, one with 640, you know, so it's just extreme. And how do you expect school counselors to be there at all aspects? They're expected to be there for students with one counselor for a thousand students. That just blows my mind. Mm. And these students are missing out on that. You know, they're missing out on that resource. So let me ask you lastly, Melissa, I mean, you you do this research, you experienced this yourself, you wanted to sort of understand the problem more. Having mm-hmm. done that and having lived it yourself, what do you think the answer is? Like, do you think that the, that school counselors and the, the way that you're trained should be rethought and be more like a mental health counselor? Do you think that the ratio just needs to be more reasonable? Do you think there need to be, you know, other changes? Tell us what your solutions look like. So I think all of the above, Hmm. (laughs) and even with caseload numbers, definitely need to come down, as well as possibly add more social workers or support staff on the campuses. I found in my research, the counselors felt like there was lack of support from leadership and um, having more professional development for school counselors. I heard that across the board. If you catch it beforehand, as well as implement things for current counselors who've been doing it, you know, I think that's huge. It's huge support for school counselors and hopefully the numbers of counselors stay, you know, stay with the schools and help these kiddos out. We'll leave it there. Melissa Manganaro, jewelry teacher here in the Valley, a former high school counselor whose PhD dissertation is on compassion fatigue in counseling. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for telling us your story. Yeah, thank you for looking into this. I really appreciate the time. And finally, in science. A study led by University of Arizona researchers found that climate-driven extinction is speeding up. The work is based on surveys of dwindling lizard populations in southern Arizona's Sky Island mountain ranges. Matthew Casey reports. U of A professor John Weens says he chose yarrow spiny lizards for the study because they are common, easy to find, and territorial. So we are really confident when we say that they're not there anymore. Previous studies on extinction due to climate change were measured in decades. But Weens says the cool climate lizards he surveyed are disappearing much faster in southern Arizona. We found like 70 years worth of extinction in just seven years. Weens says warm winter temperatures may be why the lizard species faces extinction, as others that have adapted to hotter climates appear to be doing all right. He predicts a population near Bisbee will be gone by 2025. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beast Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.